Our final scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, He fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and Went in where the child was, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks for your word. For your word that doesn't fade. Though we fade, your word remains. Though our lives pass, your word remains forever. Give us strength and wisdom and courage to stand on your word this morning to be encouraged by it, to be strengthened by it for the life that you've called us to live in this world. For the sake of your glory and your gospel, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. 
You know, when I was about uh, 11, maybe 12 years old, I was allowed to go on a rafting camping trip with my older brother and his friends, which having an 11 and 12 year old now, I don't, couldn't imagine letting them go on a camping trip with older siblings to go do something like this, but I was allowed to, and at the time, you know, when you're 11, you don't care, I can do this, mom and dad, great, I'll go do this. And so we get to this campsite, it's kind of over near the Snake River, and we decide to go rafting. Day two, we wake up in the morning, we get these rafts, we, we hop into the river, and it's when we get there that I realize these rafts are not really meant for uh, a, a river. They're kind of bought at Walmart, you know, probably Bymart, and uh, they weren't seaworthy or river-worthy, as it were, but we hopped in them anyways, and we start going down the river, and pretty soon I hit this bend in the river, and our raft hits it, and it capsizes, and I'm sinking, and I'm thinking to myself, this is, this is it. This is, this is over. And then uh, I put my feet down, and I could stand, so it wasn't over for me quite yet. And then we slowly make our way to the side of the, the river, and then I realize, and I'm thinking to myself, man, this is great, survive that, good, let's do something different. And uh, so everyone kind of pulls off to the side of the river, and then we realized that we had no idea where we were. Um, we didn't plan ahead at all, which isn't surprising if you're talking about like 18, 19-year-old boys. And so there we were on the side of the river. I thought we were good, but now I know, now I'm starting to actually panic. And then we decide, okay, we think those train tracks are up there. We could probably get up there and fall them back, but we had to scale this cliff. And so we kind of scale this cliff, and I'm already thinking, I'm going to die. I'm definitely going to die now. But we make it to the top. And then we start following these train tracks, and finally I'm starting to feel a little bit of relief. I'm like, okay, we finally made it to the worst. Following these train tracks, we know that they, they're near our campsite, so we should be good. Then all of a sudden we come to this place where there's this long tunnel. A tunnel long enough where you couldn't see the end, and if, you know, usually following train tracks into a tunnel is not a good idea. Don't do this. It's very dangerous. And, uh, but we had no other way. And so finally, they can, we kind of talked, okay, if a train comes, this is what we do. We dive on the ground, and we kind of go off the side and just kind of keep your head down until it passes. And it's just like, that doesn't sound like a great idea, but I guess this is what we're doing. So we started going down the trail, and then, then the guys, one of my brother's friends said, no, just beware, there's probably snakes in here, and things like that. So just, so it's like one thing after another. And finally, I, I just, just was discovering the limits of my desperation, of my hope. I just, I had no hope that we were going to make it through and live I, I did live, uh, but, um, and all my brother's friends, we all made it out alive. But at this moment, I began to find the limits of my hope. My desperation, like one bad thing happening after another, was taking me to the limits of myself. And here this morning, we find true desperation. We find that two desperate people who have had the hope knocked out of them in their lives. And just remember where we are here. Jesus, last week, he just healed this man that had a legion of demons in him across the sea. And he had just come back across the Sea of Galilee to where he was before. And he encounters these two needy, desperate people that are reaching the limits of their hope. Trial after trial has beaten it out of them. You know, as we consider this this morning, the truth is we all have limits to our hope, don't we? Maybe you've reached the end of your hope in your life in a hard situation before. Maybe you're in the middle of it right now, experiencing your own limits. And for others of us, many times we actually experience the limits of our hope subconsciously. We subconsciously limit Jesus and what he can do in our troubled lives. And I think often this happens based on what we're willing to ask him for, what we're willing to trouble him for in prayer. 
The question that rings out in this text is, are you willing to trouble Jesus with your life? Or have you already given up hope so that you don't even bother asking him because you assume that he's not going to help you? I think one of the reasons why we end up doing this is because no one wants to be needy. No one wants to feel desperate. None of us want to feel out of control, so much so that many of us, we don't even actually want to need Jesus. What do, we, what, do we, what do we do with that? What do we do with our neediness? Even the neediness we can't see we actually have. What's wild in this story this morning is that we're going to find that, that being needy is actually the, the good place to be. And maybe even more than that, being needy is essential for the life of the Christian because only desperate people can actually be helped by Christ. Only Jesus can bring the healing that we need And what we find here is that Jesus loves the needy. He loves the hopeless. Because only Jesus can bring hope to the hopeless. A hope that holds fast no matter what comes our way. A hope that can hold fast because our hope is ultimately a borrowed hope. Borrowed from Christ. And so in this, we're going to find an amazing, I think, encouragement. That although we experience limits, Christ has no limits. There's no limits to his love for his children. No limits to the depths that he will go to rescue his people. Jesus loves the needy. And we're going to see this, I think, in two ways this morning. The first is this, that Jesus loves the needy by giving hope to the desperate. Jesus loves the needy by giving hope to the desperate. You know, as we encounter this text, we we actually encounter two desperate people that Jesus gives hope to. The first we find is Jairus, looking back at verse 21, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So just a little background on this person, Jairus. You know, he's, he's a, a leader in the synagogue, one of the rulers of the synagogue, and by that, it doesn't mean he was a priest in the synagogue. He, he actually was someone that took care of the physical needs of the place. It would have been similar to the role of a deacon now in our churches who take care of the physical needs of a building. And so this was a man who would have been well-known, well-connected in the community. And here he comes to Jesus, falling on his face, saying, touch my daughter and heal her. Well, he was coming to Jesus for help because he was desperate. He, he had nowhere else to go. Jesus was his last hope, and his daughter was dying. And what father wouldn't do whatever he could to save his child, even if it meant humiliating himself in front of everybody, in front of the crowds, someone with dignity, falling on their face, saying, you're my last hope. He was willing to do this because his daughter was at the point of death, which is to say that she wasn't just really, really sick. She was about to die. She was knocking on death's door, And if anyone here has ever seen someone shortly before they die, you can tell when someone is close to death. The skin begins to go pale. The body begins to go limp. The the eyes begin to drift in and out. And that you can sense that the life is leaving them. This was the state his daughter was in. And a man with his kind of means and his kind of connections in the community would have had access to any doctor, any new healing technology that they might have had, and nothing could be done. Nothing could save her. He was 
desperate as any of us would be if our children were in peril. And he'd heard about Jesus. He'd heard that he has power to heal. And so he says, you know, this is my last chance to maybe find someone that can do something. And if Jesus didn't come, there was nothing else for him to do. No other hope for him to turn to. His only hope was a man named Jesus who seemed to have power over these kinds of things. And it says here in verse 24 that Jesus responded by simply, and he went with him. Jesus doesn't appear to ask any questions. He knows the matter is urgent, and he simply goes with him. Jesus loves the needy by giving hope to the desperate. And we find even his presence with the man brings him hope. And even the Lord's presence in our own lives brings us hope. That God's present with us always, even in the valleys and even on the mountaintops. And then as Jesus begins to go with with Jairus to to meet his need, our story is interrupted in an interesting way. On his way to Jairus' house, he is stopped by a second person. We see this in verse 24 through uh, 28. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. This is wild. This is a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years straight. She was Desperate, She had gone to every doctor. She had spent all her money to be made well, and yet she only got worse. She was desperate for healing. She had no other options. You know, once I had plantar fasciitis plague my left foot for two years. If you don't know what that is, it's just a giant pain in your left foot, and, or right foot. It's not just for the left feet. But mine was in my left foot. And it's one of those things where, especially when I woke up in the morning, I couldn't even walk. And it plagued me for two years years. And I thought that was really bad. But 12 years dealing with bleeding? That is long. That is a long time. She was desperate. Not only is she physically unwell, that would have been bad enough, but she would have been considered ceremonially unclean as well, which meant that she would not have been able to go into the temple to worship for 12 years. 12 years not being able to worship with the community of God Imagine having an ailment for 12 years that just was getting worse, that was separating you from people. She was desperate. And she too comes to Jesus, her only hope. She too had probably heard stories about him. And she must have thought, maybe, maybe he can do something if I could just reach out and touch him. And we read this happening in verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him, the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Remember where we're at in this story. Jesus is actually 
in a hurry, right? To get to Jairus' daughter before she dies so that he can heal her. What's happening here would have been like if an ambulance was racing down the road to get to somebody who's just had a heart attack and dying, and they see someone fall over on their bike and like, oh, I'm going to stop and help that person before we get to this person. And this is what Jesus does. He pulls off to the side. Before they can get to Jairus' daughter, they pull off to the side to help someone else. One of the things that this should teach us, if nothing else, that Jesus is never inconvenienced by your problems. Jesus is never too busy to hear you, to help you, to heal you. You are never too needy for Jesus. And in faith, this woman reaches out and touches Christ. And we have two things that happen here immediately, it says. Immediately she was healed. She could feel it happening in her body, it says. And also immediately Jesus could sense that this happened. He says he could sense the power go out of him. And he he turns and says, who touched me? And the disciples thought that this is so odd. They say, listen, Jesus, who isn't touching you? We have somewhere to go. Let's leave this and let's go already. And yet Jesus stops. And the woman, sensing what had happened, knowing that something miraculous had happened, comes forward in fear and trembling. Who has this kind of power? Overwhelmed, she tells him everything. I've been bleeding for 12 years. I've spent all I've had. I've tried everything. I'm desperate. When I heard about you, about the miracles that you've done, I had to come. I had to touch you. I had to see if what I heard was true. She said, I I knew if I touched you, you would heal me. She was desperate. She was desperate enough to have faith in Christ. How amazing is it that this woman had any hope left in her at all? It's almost as if she's spending the last ounce of hope she had in this moment, spending all that she had to touch Jesus. And Jesus answers in verse 34, go in peace, be healed, granting her physical healing, healing, peace, inner healing. His touch heals the broken world, bringing restoration. Jesus already making all things new. Jesus gives hope to desperate people by healing them, by being with them. The question for us with these stories is, are you desperate enough to have this kind of hope yet? Or do you try to keep yourself from being needy, attempting to cover all your weaknesses yourself? Are you desperate enough to have faith in Christ? Because it was these two people's desperation that actually led them to Christ. Their neediness was their best asset was their only asset that they brought. And what's wild about this story is that right as this is happening, right as we're seeing this miracle, this 12-year-old, this 12-year bleeding person healed, uh, Jarius must have had a mix of emotions, right? On one hand, he must have thought to himself, wow, I clearly have come, I've clearly come to the right person. You just healed this person who had been struggling for 12 years. No doctor could heal him. You healed him in an instant. I've clearly come to the right person. And also, he must have been thinking, uh, but let's hurry up. My daughter is needy. Come quickly. And right at this moment, we get interrupted with verse 35, the most haunting words, I think, of this text. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? His daughter has died. You can only imagine what's going on in Jairus' mind. Jesus, if only you had not delayed. Jesus, if only you had come sooner. Jesus, why did you get so distracted? Couldn't you have 
tended to this woman after you came and healed my daughter? Maybe you've asked similar questions, waiting to be healed, struggling with physical conditions, struggling with your own lifelong sickness, lifelong mental struggles, depression, anxiety, struggling with besetting sins, struggling in marriage and other relationships, and you say, come quickly, Jesus. And yet he comes slow. What do we do when this happens? I think we're tempted like these people are to say, don't bother the teacher anymore. It's, it's, too, it's too late. He has the power over the sick, sure, but no one has the power over the dead. Dead people don't come back to life. It's too late. And sooner or later, we can give up just like they do. We stop praying. We stop asking. We give in to our hopelessness. Our desperation actually turns to hopelessness. You know, when you're desperate for something, it still assumes that you're desperate for something to happen. But hopelessness means that you've resigned yourself to give up. There's nothing left to even be desperate for. I think for us, this can be magnified in our own lives when we see other people's prayers being answered. We see other people being healed. And we think, what about us? Have you forgotten us, Jesus? I think in this moment, I don't think it... It surprises us that Jesus helps people that are desperate for him, but what about us who have given up hope? What about those who can't even muster desperation? And Jesus enters into this attention to show us one more amazing thing about his love for the needy. That he doesn't just love you and seek you out when you're desperate for him, when you're aware of your neediness, but also even when your hope has faded. He seeks you out because of his love for the hopeless. This is the second thing we find here about Jesus' love for the needy. It's this, that Jesus loves the needy by pursuing the hopeless. Jesus loves the needy by pursuing the hopeless. And make no mistake, they are hopeless in this moment. Who wouldn't be? They thought Jesus could heal the sick, but they had no hope of him resurrecting the dead. Why bother the teacher? And so Jesus looks at the father here who has lost his daughter In verse 36, he says, do not fear, only believe. Jesus is looking at this father whose daughter had just died and said, trust me, believe in me. This isn't too much for me. And he enters into the chaos of this moment with just his inner circle. And the scene before him is is as you might expect. It's chaotic. There's weeping, there's wailing. Children aren't supposed to die before their parents. Children are supposed to outlast us. So they are rightly weeping, wailing, confused, angry. How could this happen? And Jesus walks into this room and says this in verse 39. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They had them thinking, What are you talking about, Jesus? We know what dead people look like. She's clearly not sleeping. Are you mocking us? And in turn, they actually mocked Jesus. In verse 40, it says they laughed at him. They knew that she was dead. Dead people don't rise. And even at their mocking, how does Jesus respond to this? Does he turn them away for the lack of faith? No. In fact, if anything, this laughing spurs him on all the more because Jesus loves to pursue the hopeless. And so it says he, he kicks the people out of the room and goes in with just the father and the mother and his inner circle of disciples, and he does this in verse 40. And when they had laughed at him, but he put them all outside and and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him 
and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Jesus comes close to this little girl and he touches her. And he says, Talitha kum, which is the equivalent of saying, wake up. Right? It's like you going to your child to wake them up from a nap, gently touching them, saying, wake up. The touch of Jesus is gentle. It's caring. He's pursuing this little girl even to the place of death. And again, we have this pairing of two immediate things happening. First, the, the immediacy of her healing. Right? Not just brought back to life, but she is healed. She's in full health. Touching Jesus brings healing. Immediate healing. And this healing is followed by another immediate thing, amazement, joy, wonder, hope. Jesus restores hope to the hopeless. Jesus pursued them to the depths of despair to heal them, to restore their hope and their joy. And this is what the gospel of Christ does for us as well. I think one of the more powerful things about this story is that Jesus, especially someone in his rank, would know that touching the dead would make him actually unclean. Touching the sick, a bleeding woman, would have made Jesus unclean and unable to go into the temple. But this doesn't slow Jesus down at all. It doesn't bother him. It doesn't trouble him because he takes the uncleanness of the woman and this girl on himself and gives them his purified standing. He takes our troubles on himself to give us hope. He takes our afflictions upon himself to give us peace, to restore our hope. Right? He is taking on the defilement of the 12-year-old bleeding woman and the 12-year-old child. This is also symbolic of him taking on the defilement of the 12 tribes of Israel on himself. He has come to take the sins of his people on himself, to defile himself on their behalf that we might have life in him, that his people would be restored. Jesus loves the needy by giving hope to the hopeless. Even for those of you in this room who are in the thick of it right now, I can't promise you physical healing in this moment or even in your lifetime, but I can promise you that Christ has taken your unclean nature, your unpurifiedness on himself, that he was burdened, he was troubled on your account so that you might have peace with him, so that you might have hope in something more lasting than any temporary healing can bring, but in eternal life with him, in a world that's undefiled, in a world that only knows clean because there will be no death, no disease to defile it, in a world truly at peace. And he offers us his peace now. His hope to you now is actually the immediate thing. This is what gives us hope, though, isn't it? Our hope is a future one, but it's also a present one because Christ doesn't just forgive our sins in the future. He doesn't just promise to cleanse us in the future, but actually right now, at this moment, if you have faith in him, you are at peace with God. Even if you don't feel like it, this is true of you. Even though you will sin again in this life, you are saints a beloved son and daughter of the living God, and there's no length that he won't endure to rescue you. Because like any good father, he will sacrifice whatever is necessary to heal you, to save you, even if that means his own life being laid down. 
So if you have faith in him, there is no mountain that can stand between you and him. There is no valley so deep that he is not with you. There is no doubt so strong to keep you from him. His love has no limits for his children. Not even death can keep us from him. So the call for us is to let ourselves to be needy. Let yourself be desperate. Bother Jesus with your burdens. And also, we're called to bother each other with them. Often we think we are a bother by our neediness. But actually, this is what makes us able to be loved and served in community. We are all in this room needy. We should never stop being needy, never stop troubling each other, and never stop troubling God with our problems. We're actually called to share them with each other. And with God, that we might experience healing, that we might experience the touch of Christ and his community with each other in the church, loving each other, serving each other well. And even if you've lost hope, Jesus will pursue you. And the church is called to pursue each other in our community who have lost hope. Right? And in this, we find that our salvation doesn't depend on us, on our hope, but on him and his He's called the rock of our salvation for a reason, because he is strong. May we be a church that has a faith to trust in him, to turn to him. May we have the faith to ask for impossible things. May we be a church that's full of needy people, desperate and hopeless people who have faith in Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Pray with me. Merciful and gracious, Father, we give you thanks that we don't have to be strong to come to you, but in fact, true strength is weakness. Help us to learn to be a humble people, to lay down our lives for our neighbors, to be a people who are desperate for your help in our lives. God, we pray that you would apply these words by the power of your spirit working in us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.